Good morning. It's uh, Sunday. Let's talk about misery today. How's that sound? Yeah? How many of you are miserable? How many of you want to be miserable? We're going to talk about it anyway, because we've all had a point in our life when we have felt misery. You felt miserable. Uh, oftentimes, first thing in the morning, you go, oh my goodness, I have to get up. Oh, you look outside, it's raining. Um, and when I first think about the word misery, uh, this is the picture that comes to mind. Do you remember her? Dear sweet little Kathy Bates, 1990. I still have that scene. I cannot shake it when she pulls out that mallet and oh, it's awful. Um, but but I, I've been miserable before. I have been miserable before. And, and when I think about it, I actually told this story on Wednesday night. I was teaching another class. And when I think about times in my life where I've, I've encountered misery, this, this one stands out as uh, among the greatest. Uh, we had finished an entire week of VBS, and it was closing day on Sunday, and we, we, we go through, and I, I finished preaching, but then after all of that, you still have the cleanup, and the cleanup goes for another five or six hours, and we had this beautiful idea, hey, let's finish off a great week of VBS and go camping immediately after VBS. You know camping, it's real easy. You don't have to do much, you just kind of get in your car and go. Uh, except I, I came home around five o'clock and, and my wife had already got a lot of the packing done, but I'm looking and you know, the minivan is, the, the suspension is starting to go down a little bit more and we just throw everything in and like I'm holding it and she's shutting the door and it's one of those moments and, and we go out to Carpinteria to meet with like 10 other Calvary families. We're going beach camping of all things. And so we go out there and it's like five or six years ago, we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Do you understand the misery picture I'm painting for you right now? This is camping. This is not a Disney cruise. And we are among the last people to get there. And the rest of the families have formed the circle of tents. And there was one spot left in the middle. So we're setting up things in the dark. And we're kind of getting things going. And we, uh, God bless baby Jed at the time. Um, he was not a great sleeper then. And uh, we... We had these moments on this, on this trip, uh, on the first night. Uh, if you can imagine this scenario in the tent, we have his pack and play right here. Merrily, my wife right next to him, and then me on the ground. We didn't have the fancy cots or inflatable beds. We just roughed it. And then at our feet was our three-year-old who could sleep all the time, no problem. Oh, and Carpinteria has a train that comes by about every 10 minutes, all right? Really close. It was wonderful. Um, Jed did not want to go to sleep. Um, he stood up in his pack and play and just cried. And we let this go on as much as possible. We tried every trick in the book. We tried everything. And, and there's this point where the tension is building between us as parents and our child. And now the tension is starting to go in between us in our marriage. And I'm looking at my wife saying, do something she says, I've done everything I can possibly do. Like, just feed him again, diaper. We did everything and nothing is working. Remember this, right? And, and, and I just said, just let me take him. And Marilee looks at me. She says, I cannot let you take him because I'm scared of what you might do to him. <laughs> and we're close to the sea. And I'm just thinking, like, I'll just, you know, whatever. Like, give him to the Lord, like Jonah. And, and, and so we are... What do we, what do we do? And, and everybody else around, we are in the middle and tents don't have thick walls like at home and 
you just, you, you got to scream, but it's a whisper. Shut up. And everybody can hear us. And I'm like the children's pastor. And I should have this more together than I do. It's misery. And this goes on for a couple of hours. And I'm just, I'm done, right? And I step over my wife. And I reach over and I grab my child lovingly by the back of the neck and just place him down and say, go to sleep or I will kill you. <laughs> and you get that moment where you think it's okay and you just gently take your hand off and the little turd stands back up and starts crying. And I don't know what else to do. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. And as I'm stepping back over my wife, my big toe just ever so slightly grazes her back. And she just swings at me and hits me. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and we just do this for another half hour. And then the point comes and she looks at me and says, I don't care what you do to him. Just take him far away from here. And I said, it's daddy time. <laughs> I grab my boy and we go into the minivan. It's one in the morning and I don't know where I'm at. I just get on PCH and I end up in Santa Barbara, 20 minutes to the north. And he's just screaming still in the car. And there's like a police officer. I feel like, what is going on? I just pull over into some neighborhood. We go into the back of the minivan and we lay down and he finally falls asleep. 7 a.m. comes, and I look at this little creature that I wanted to kill just a few hours before, and he's cute, and he's resting, and he's drooling on my bicep, and, and, and I just look and say, oh, I'm so glad I didn't kill him. And, and, and then we hear a trash truck come in the neighborhood, and he pops up and just kind of, trash truck, trash truck. And he pops up and is walking in circles around the back of the minivan. Chest check, chest check. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And now the, it's the drive of shame coming back. And I've already made up my mind, we are going home. We lasted about 12 hours. And we come back and God bless you people of Calvary Church that were with us that year. He said, we barely even heard him. I was like, right. We, we were just praying for you in our tents. It was like... Uh, we've all been there before. No, not in the same way, because we were just miserable. Now, that's an example of misery. And we have, we have examples in our life that are serious examples of misery, where we've really, like, death of a loved one, of a child, You're, the death of your marriage, uh, loss of a job, rejection by friends. Um, we, we felt misery. And I want you to understand today that in your misery, we have a God who sees you and understands where you are at and wants to use the misery, have compassion, and to bring you out of the misery. But it's not just miserable situations. We think, my life stinks right now. Get me out of my misery. But the misery that God is concerned about is, is our sinful condition that we continue to run after and chase after other gods that we think are going to be the fix in our lives. And he wants to be the Lord of our lives. You look at the book of Judges, and it is a miserable book. It is a miserable commentary of a miserable people who are, are going after God in their best efforts at times, and then other times just continue to give themselves over to sin. And depravity. And the, the, the last sentence in the entire book says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own mind. And that just led to misery. 
We're going to look at the life of a guy today named Jephthah. Um, I took this passage because I didn't know anything about it, honestly. Um, I've read through the Bible and somehow I must have been sleeping during these couple of chapters because I, I thought about it and I, I, didn't, I didn't really know anything. Here is our, our, our map of where we're at. We're going to be in Judges chapter 10. We're going to start in, in verse 6. Um, but Jephthah is a character that's going to show up in chapter 11, but I want to give you some background from chapter 6. He's from uh, Gilead. It's, uh, it's a range that covers three different tribes, two and a half tribes, um, along the Transjordan area right there and along the Jordan. And here's the situation. So go to Judges chapter 10, verse 6. There's an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along with me. But I want you to see this. In verse 6, it says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Uh, I want you to understand, I was here a month ago when we talked about a guy named Ehud. And when we talked about Ehud, the list of gods other than the true God that the Israelites were serving stopped there. Back in Judges chapter 3, they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now we have some other gods. And as they intermingle and as they get familiar with all of these other tribes around them, they say, what God are you worshiping? And they just start worshiping that God also. So here are the other gods that Israel is serving. The Baals and Asherah and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus, they forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. And so God is looking down in verse 7. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And those guys afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. And for 18 years, they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly distressed, a.k.a. they were miserable. So this is the cycle. We sin, and now we are sorry. And in verse 10... It says, then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. I want you to hear today that God wants to help us overcome misery. That God is concerned about your misery this morning. They are familiar with their sin. They cry out to the Lord and they, they reach out for an apology. Have you gotten to the point in your life where you wanted to make an apology to somebody? You come up with the apology. You go up to the person and you say, I'm really sorry for what I did. And they say, I don't think that you're sorry. Have you had that before? How does that make you feel? A little bit frustrated? A little bit ticked off? Do you like try again and say, Wait, let me, you're right, I didn't do, no, no, you just start getting really defensive and you like, I I just said sorry, what, what else do you want from me? Well, Israel throws out this sorry and then God responds in verse 11 and this is what he says. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not deliver you? From the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines. Also when the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. 
Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you've chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Wait, God, you're supposed to forgive all the time. God, I thought that this is what you do. We apologize and we say sorry. We do what we're supposed to do. And the exchange goes, you just forgive us. You send us a deliverer because you've done it nine times before so far in this book. That's what happens, right? No, not this time. It's as if pulling from Romans 1 says God just gave them over to their lusts. Like they, they forgot to serve and to worship the creator. They just started worshiping the created things. And so God just gave them over to their sin. He says, no, no, no. Those are the gods you've chosen. Now just go worship them. I, I don't accept your apology. Just, just stay miserable. Their idolatry led to more idolatry. They, they just kept going. And God said, if that's what you want, you can't have us both. So, this is the life that you've chosen. Now take it. Well, they didn't like this. So what it says in the next part. The sons of Israel, in verse 15, said to the Lord, We have sinned due to us. Whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Round two of the apology. It's interesting. It wasn't just lip service. It was action. They put away the foreign gods and they served the Lord. And when they did that, we see the tension between the holiness and the justice of God and the mercy of God. That God relents on his anger and he shows grace and compassion. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Do you believe that that same God looks at your misery, the circumstances, but more so the sinful condition of your life and your heart and can no longer bear your misery. See, there's, there's this idea that when we come to God and when we ask for forgiveness that we're very half-hearted in our approach. And so we, we struggle. And, and I, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, like you, you get in trouble with your siblings and you have like the apology session, right? And you go up and, and your parents kind of make you go through this thing where you say, I'm sorry. Now you're supposed to say, I forgive you. And then they force the hug, right? Right? You, you go through that? I mean, how many of you went through that, but you didn't really mean it all that much? Yeah, there's the honesty coming out. Uh, in, in our house, we, we, we've, we've tried to do something a little bit more. We, we've mas we're mastering the apology. We're trying to work at a heart level, and so we go through some steps. We go through some questions, and our kids kind of know this by heart now and kind of roll their eyes a bit, but we think it's good for them long-term. We're trying, so we say, we get them together and say, I am sorry for, and they fill in the blank. It was wrong because, and they fill in the blank. In the future, I will. This is what we do. And then will you forgive me? And then we make them hug. <laughs> but there's something about 
a, a repentance, not, not just a repentance because we got caught or we hate the consequences of the sin or the wrong that we have done, uh, but it's, it's a repentance over the motives of our heart and the idolatry of our heart that we continue to do this over and over again and we feel the weight of our sinfulness. Um, what, what Israel is doing in their first apology is kind of like this. They're saying, God, I want you, I need you, I need you to give me X. I am sorry and I need you to give me this. And, and if that's the case, God, I just want you to remove the miserable situation in my life so that I can have this. And that reveals that X is truly our God. But in their second time around, their apology is, I want you, God, whether or not you give me X, Y, or Z. And when we can get to a place with God that we are praying that prayer and asking for that level of forgiveness then it reveals that God is our true God. Now, Israel is stuck, and God has compassion on their misery. His heart is breaking over their misery. They finally get to this point, and, and now there's a battle that's brewing in verse 17. The sons of Ammon were, were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mitzpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now there's a war that's brewing. And before, God has raised up a deliverer. But now they're just kind of scratching their heads saying, Who is going to help us? Enter the deliverer. His name is Jephthah. Chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior. Pay attention to that. We'll come back. But he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. There's pain. There's rejection. And Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows, scoundrels, gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. This is the misery of a rough start in life. Some of you, this is your story, that you did not have it easy. You did not grow up in a two-parent family, Christian home, coming to church every single week. You started out rough. I want you to see how God uses individuals. You look at the deliverers that God has sent so far, right? We look at Ehud, a left-handed man, probably crippled on his right side. We look at Deborah, who in that culture, a woman, how, how could she be a deliverer? We look at Gideon, who's scared and hiding in a wine press during war. And now we get to this guy, the son of a harlot. But for some reason, the writer of Judges pens him and talks about him as a valiant and mighty warrior. God has his hand on the life of Jephthah, whether he knows about it or not. I was intrigued by reading a story about a woman named Ethel Waters. Ethel Waters was the product of a rape of a 13-year-old girl by a grown man named John Waters who was a pianist. 
Um, when Ethel was born, she was raised by prostitutes, never lived in the same place for more than 15 months at a time, got married herself at age 13, put into an abusive relationship that she eventually got away from and was working in a restaurant just trying to make ends meet. She describes her life as saying, I was never a child. I was never cuddled or liked or understood by my family. But God intervened in her life and she ended up touring, going around with a guy named Billy Graham singing this song. His eye is on the sparrow and God used her for a period of her life over 20 years, touring with Billy Graham, bringing hope to many people. Go today and download this song, His Eye is on the Sparrow, and think about the words that she is singing and the deliverance that God has brought to her life. You can come from a rough start in this life, and God wants to be part of helping you overcome the misery. Now, not only do we have a misery that can be from a rough start in our life, but also from broken relationships. Do you have people in your life that you are no longer talking to, even maybe family members? So Jephthah is sent away by his brothers because not born of a mother, but of, of, a, of a harlot. And so his identity is kind of stamped into his life from the very beginning. And in verse 4, we have his, his entrance or re-entry back into uh, the life of the people. Now, I'll, I want you to look at this in verse 4. It says, It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. This is picking up from the last chapter. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they, they said to Jephthah, Come, be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. You will be our leader. You will be our judge. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. And then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. I want you to hear this. Mitzpah is a very important place. Back in Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban, they get this pile of stones. It's a big rubble heap, and they go before the Lord, and God is witness to an agreement that they made. Mitzpah is this place where God comes, and there's, there's an encounter there. There is, they would call it the tower, a memorial where God would be witness. And so Jephthah, knowing the history of Israel and what's going on in former battles, as we'll see in a second, he makes sure that this is cemented in and, and now there is a, a sort of reunion and he brings his band of evildoers with him and now they are going to go to war against their enemies and, and hoping that God is going to deliver them. God wants to overcome misery in your life. I want you to understand, though, that sometimes we come from this place that we don't think that God is for us. We, we have this picture of a God who is against us, ready to zap us when we have done something wrong. So I want you to hear this today, that God is for you, that God is not against you. And I want you to circle around with this question, this idea, what would you do, what decisions would you make, how would your life be radically different if you 
just trusted if you lived according to this idea and, and knowing and living out that God is for you and God is not against you. We're going to see how this plays out in the life of Jephthah. God is for us when we encounter opposition. Now, they have a leader, and now they're going, and, and this is a little bit confusing. You have to kind of sit with this next section with a map, but let me just give you a, 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 a really quick overview. Um, it, but read, read with me for a second. Chapter, chapter 11, verse 12. Jephthah sent messengers to the kings of the sons of Ammon. This is the enemy, and he says, "'What is between you and me that you have come to fight against my land?' And the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, those are rivers, therefore return them peaceably now. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon, for when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea, they came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at this place called Kadesh. And in verse 18, Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom, and around the land of Moab, and they came to the east side of the land of Moab. They camped beyond the territory, beyond the Arnon, but they did not enter the territory of Moab for the Arnon was the border. I, I, here, here's the overview, right? We're, we're rehashing history. Just like today, who does the land belong to? That fight was going on thousands of years ago. Um, at this point, it's a 300-year-old battle. And, and he's saying, hey, uh, the king of the sons of Ammon, he, he's saying, you guys took our land and he says, no, we didn't take the land. We actually made great effort to actually go around the land. We asked for permission, but the kings at the time wouldn't even let us pass through. So we went over here, and eventually God is the one that, that helped them in this. If you look in verse 21, the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed the land of the Amorites and the inhabitants of that country. God was the one that went before them, delivered them. God is the one that gave them that land. It's a 300-year-old battle. And now Jephthah is asking this question. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people, are you then to possess it? He's saying, look, God is the one that gave this land to us. If, if you've been so upset about it over the last 300 years, why haven't you done anything until now? And he gives his explanation in verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord the judge judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah had sent to him. He's encountering battle. And I want you to understand that what Jephthah is doing is he's recounting the truth of the history. And God was with him in that. It's a, it's a story that really, like, you got to just sit down and look at the map, and it's amazing to kind of just see all the places that they are, are going around. We don't have time. But I want you to look at this, because out of everything that we've heard and learned about Jephthah, the next part is the part that everybody who knows about him talks about him for. And it starts in verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Okay? God is in this. God is going to hear Israel. There is the deliverer, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. 
And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. In verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace after I've won everything... From the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. He makes a vow. Most of your Bibles say, Jephthah's tragic vow. In verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord has already fallen upon and is on Jephthah. God is giving him victory before he even sets foot on the battlefield. But for Jephthah, this is not enough. He makes a promise. He makes a vow to God, and he says, whatever comes out of my house... When I have won this battle and I come back home, he's actually resettled. He's moved from the land of Tob to to Mitzpah. And when I get back there um, in victory, whatever comes out to greet me, I will offer up as a burnt offering. You better text ahead of time and make sure you know who's coming out if that's the promise that you're going to make. So Jephthah, in verse 32, crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter. People who've analyzed this say that he caught people in small, narrow passageways, and it was amazingly intricate and amazingly, when they look at the the geography of the land, he would trap them in these narrow passages and, and just annihilated them. He was a man of war. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Eror to the entrance of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Kerarim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. God gave them victory. Now in verse 34, Jephthah comes back to his house at Mitzpah, beholds the moment of truth. His daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Not an unusual scene. There are places before and throughout the Bible when somebody would come back from battle and they won, that the women of Israel would come out and sing songs and dance before the Lord in praise. And it just so happens that the person that comes out of his house is his daughter. Not only his daughter, but it says now she was his one and only child. And besides her, he had no son or daughter. And instead of rejoicing when he saw his daughter... He tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. The misery that has now entered Jephthah's life is a misery up until this point that he's not been acquainted with. He's had a pretty miserable life up until this point. But just at the moment when everything just started to pinnacle for him and things were starting to go well, the bottom drops out from underneath. What was he thinking with this vow? What was he thinking was going to come out of his house? Animals at that time did not live in the home, so he was not thinking that it was an animal that was going to come out. Maybe he thought it was one of his servants And even then, what's going on in his mind? I want to make sure that we understand that God did not give Jephthah the victory because of this vow. The victory was already there. He made this vow 
because of his culture that he came out of. Living in the land of Tob and being associated with the pagan cultures and living and hanging around with worthless fellows, there was this pagan mindset that you could just go before your pagan God and you can offer something and get something in return. And so Jephthah has a weak faith and he's saying, God, I will give you something and now it's time to pay up. And he looks and it's his daughter. And he's troubled. And his daughter... In verse 36, so she said to him, my father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity. I and my companions. And he said, go. (laughs) Kind of trusting. So he sent her away for two months and she left with her companions, wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did according to her to the vow which she had made and she had no relations with a man and thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead four days of the year. Look, I want you to understand to hear that God is for us even when we have a weak faith, an imperfect faith and it's a, a, a lack of faith in the grace of God. Um, there are places in Leviticus, Old Testament law, that say that we shall not create or, or make a, a, a sacrifice of, of humans. The sacrifice that God wants from us is a self-sacrifice, a sacrifice of our hearts towards him. But Jephthah's picture of God was not a God that was for him. It was a God that was against him. And if he didn't do this and follow through, then God was going to zap him. Now, some people would say, and there's two schools of thought, I actually happen to think that he sacrificed his daughter. Some people think that the mourning was over her virginity and that he would not have any offspring to continue. To be a mother in Israel was your greatest desire. And, and, I, and one interesting thing, if you look at before the story of Jephthah and right after the story of Jephthah, the, the people, the judges who were there before him, they each had 30 kids. And so we have this kind of story flanked on, on, on both sides of these people who had lots of kids. And right in the middle is Jephthah who had this one and only child. I don't know what to do with that, but all I do know is that Jephthah's mindset is that I have to appease God. I have to offer something up to God to get him to do something that I want. And God says, no, 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 I I am for you. I am with you. Um, His story ends in in chapter 12, and and I I just want to encapsulate it by just saying this, that sometimes misery finds us, and sometimes we go out and find misery. Um, The Ephraimites, they come around and say, hey, we heard there's a battle, why didn't you invite us? I want you to understand that the Ephraimites are part of the family. They're not the enemy. They are in the family. And, and there's this kind of battle. And, and instead of kind of trying to work things out within the family, um, the, the, the outcome of this whole problem is that, that Jephthah and his men kill 42,000 people in one day who are part of the family. Uh, he dies in chapter 12, verse 7. And as a lot of judges, it says, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. In the story of Jephthah, there was not peace. He was a man of war. <laughs> you know what's amazing? Jephthah is listed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, as one of the heroes of the faith. <laughs> a hero of the faith the dude who was the son of the harlot, the man of war who 
sacrificed his child, made it into the back of the book. There was a trust that he put in the battle. And though his faith was not perfect, God said it was enough. Makes me think about passages like if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Where is your faith? I want you to understand that we have a God that looks at us. And this is probably the most important thing that we can walk away with today. The God, because he's for you, not against you, he sacrificed his only son because he could no longer bear our misery. Not the misery of your situations and bad parking and the rain today because your hair is all messed up. That's, that's not the misery we're talking about. God sacrificed his son because he could no longer bear your misery. In 1 John 4, it says, By this, by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God had sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction that appeased the wrath of God for our sins. It's a miserable story. Where are you at in your life? Is your sin causing you misery? Are your half-hearted attempts at trying to make good on that with God really revealing your idolatry that you can't let go, that you're not willing to put away the other gods and come before a God who has compassion and just worship Him? How would your life look different? More radically living or more restfully living if you would just trust that God is for you in this. Jonathan Edwards, a preacher from a while back, he says, it is God's manner to make men sensible of their misery and unworthiness before he reveals his saving love and mercy to their souls. God gives love and grace when we deserve his wrath. He looks at our miserable situation, has compassion and love, and says, you are mine. What measure is your faith in him? Where is your desperation? Don't look at Israel and say, again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's, that's our story. The book of Judges is here to reveal the sin of the people, but it's supposed to be a mirror to reveal our sin and our brokenness and to see that there is a God who loves and has compassion on you. Come out of hiding and come to him. He can handle it. He wants to bring you out of it. So we go and, and right now we want to we wanna come before him and we, we're going to sing some songs that I, I pray are prayers. I, I want to invite the worship team up. I pray that the songs that we're about to sing, they were specifically chosen this morning to be a response for you in prayer. Uh, if you've never been here before, you see some tables out. Um, that is for us to pause 
and, and to take communion, to be thankful, to remember our salvation, that God sent his son to save us from our misery. So we take the bread and the cup and we take that in and we say, God, thank you for forgiving me of my sin. There's also buckets there where you can give your offering. But I also just want to say that we have two places, a prayer point over there and a prayer point over there. Or if you just see somebody in here and you say, I need prayer, that you come forward and you say, I am miserable and I need help. And I want you to know, like, we're not all watching and saying, look at that person over there, they're miserable. We, we should all be over there. The seat should be empty. And we should be coming before God and saying, God, have mercy on me. I can't stop in my sin. So let's respond. Will you pray with me? Our God and our King, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for seeing us in our misery and still loving us. Help us this morning to be brave, to step forward and say, I need help. That the situation that I find myself in in my life, I can't handle this on my own anymore. And I need some help. Help us to remember that you are for us, that you are not against us that your love for us flows deep and that this place, this hallowed ground in this room is a place where we can experience your grace and not your condemnation. So stir in hearts right now, God, and be present in this room, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.